Do we need a Thanos snap? No, no, I'm not discussing that. Never mind. Abby <laughs> has been saying that lately. She she keeps saying, you know, Thanos was right. What? <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello! And Jason in DC. Hello, friends! Hi, friends, how are you? Ooh, that sounded like we were in a Sesame Place thing. I know, like you're, like you're wearing a sweater and sensible shoes. <laughs> Hello, friends! Oh boy. That's just part of my cheer of recording before I, I, 10, 10 o'clock Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> sudden sudden question. We don't have any analog to Mr. Rogers anymore, right? Not really. I mean I this is so. the this is the this is a testament to how cynical our culture has become, really. Yes. Jason, what did your kids grow up watching? They did some Sesame Street. Um, what else did they grow up watching? Well, now I mean, Sesame Street is off the table because Sesame Street hates black children. But anyway, go ahead. Don't say that. <laughs> no, I won't say that. This whole Rosita thing. Uh, if you haven't Google Rosita incident, Sesame points. <laughs> what did your children grow up watching? I, I'm trying to think what else besides Sesame Street. I mean, we, we, lots of movies. I don't know that there was like a shit. Like I like when I was a kid, it was Sesame Street, it was Electric Company, it was Fraggle Rock. Like I don't. I can't think of a litany like oh, we that. We had a lot of programming for us back then. We did. Now kids are watching. They can stream whatever whenever they want. It's yeah. different. And also they're busy watching Euphoria or whatever. <laughs> that show is a disaster. The kids are like eight and no, watching Euphoria. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Did we talk about this already? The, dis- the disappearance of Saturday morning TV? We have talked about the loss of children's programming. Yeah, maybe just broadly the loss of children's programming, but not specifically the loss of whatever the heck it is that we're dealing with right now. Special, (laughs) special, special entertainment zones for children. Yeah, children's only hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, children and everyone has just been having the same stuff. Oh, my most important question. How are you all doing? Very good. Oh, I'm good, I think. I'm good. It's been, oh, go ahead. I was going to ask Trisha about her, her plans tonight. Yes, I'm planning to have a good old time by reliving my own childhood or youth, I would say, and see Boys to Men and um, TLC. Without <gasps> left TLC? High. Why without didn't you say that high. before? How did you just mention you Boys to Men? Buried the lead. Like I was like, okay, oh, Boys wait, to Men. Is, is TLC the lead in yes. this in yeah. scenario? Oh, yeah. What yes. highest, highest selling trio? I mean, that's trio true. But I, I, I mean, thing? I like TLC. But what is TLC without the L? Right. Oh, so. I mean, it's you know, what so, they are is trying oh, very hard. And, and I mean, boys and men is from Philly, so I guess yeah, so it's cold. Motown like, Philly back again. Philly back again. <laughs> <laughs> All the Geno's. You know they're do- no, I know. Do you know they're doing a whole tour? So I'm not the only one that needs to experience this. They're doing a boys to men tour. They're Get all on, it. on tour. Did, they're all did, the 80s and 90s people on tour. I know. I saw that. There my are, cousin, there are people who I thought were dead that are like people oh are like, god, oh, I'm going Jason. to see X. I'm like, oh my god, I thought that person was dead. That person's still alive. <laughs> my cousin, uh, my cousin's son is like 10 or 11, and he loves Rick rolling people on the internet. So where they are in Atlanta, they had that an 80s tour come through. It was Rick Astley, Debbie Gibson, New Kids on the Block, Tiffany, like always. Oh my god. And so mm-hmm. she took it. And so my cousin, who is a millennial, 
is just sending me shots, like screaming. She's like, yes, this is so much fun. Like getting her entire, she's in her forties now, getting her entire life, sending me pictures of the new kids, like taking their shirts off on stage. And all these middle-aged women are like, yes. And I was like, <laughs> I love the energy of that. I love the energy. Well, have a great time. Jason, what are your plans? My plans. I was supposed to be going to Seattle family trip tomorrow, and then one of the kids tested positive for oh. COVID. So oh. leave that kid behind. Yeah. <laughs> no, I. I mean, listen. I know I'm the humor guy, but like seriously, the, this is why you. This is why the kids have other parents who don't live with you, right? Yeah, we 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 we're not comfortable doing that. Uh, so all right. So it's daddy camp next week. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. I know that. Oh, no. What are you talking You should be saying, wow, your kids are so lucky. Daddy camp. <laughs> Great. What I was referencing was the fact that whenever me and Trisha are like, oh, we're off to Paris. You're always like, I want to travel. And I know Seattle's in Paris, but like, I'm sorry. Yeah, you don't get to I was go on stymied. a trip. I know. I was yeah. stymied. COVID. I thought it was over. I know. Is it real? Um. I don't know. Let's all drink bleach and cure ourselves. <laughs> Looking back, what the fuck? What? Remember, like putting light up your asshole. No, like there I was a lot. Do we of, have to talk about this? We don't. But every now and then, I get like a snippet. Like I said, I've been listening to a lot of our old podcasts. I'm listening to our conversations, and I'm like, what was the environment we were dealing with? Like, <laughs> well, only fifty percent of Republicans want him back. Only fifty percent. Of Trump, yeah, hmm. which is uh, the amount, which is the percent that wanted him in the first place. So that's exactly, not, so it has not promising. Little... It's not promising. Another interesting statistic I heard was like um, almost half of the adult men who voted for Trump have an AK forty-seven or an AR fifteen. Wow. AR fifteen. Well, that makes sense though because that's, oh, that's I their... know that I'm not. Gonna that's go the motto, tonight. right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, first of all, I think it's one of those statistics that are meant to be like shocking, but it, at the end of the day. You think about Oklahoma, Indiana, Illinois. Like once I got into a, a, a huge discussion with my ex's uh, father, who is lives on a farm, just about uh -huh. how guns are tools. Yeah, I, I I don't know if that Jason. I don't know if that statistic is like horrifying. You know, there's just a culture of people who own guns, and they all voted for Trump. So I don't think it changes the number of guns in the country. We still had too many before Trump, and we still had too many after him. I know that's uh, true. So uh, without any that's further true. ado. Let's jump into our topic today. So Trisha, you brought to us an article about community schools. What are they and how do they work? Reported by the cutting edge of journalism, <laughs> that is Teen Vogue. Uh, and Teen Vogue is a is a very, very enlightened publication. Oh, I that know. wasn't sarcasm. Oh, okay. Teen okay. Vogue has been carrying us. Uh, carrying <laughs> us for the past five years. You know, they're the only ones out there doing the work, which so true. If, if you had told me in 2016 That's or 15, fun. I'd be saying this about Teen Vogue, I would have been like, girl, please. But here we are. Anyway, Teen Vogue asks community schools, what are they and how do they work? So a community school, and we'll get into what the definition of that is, but writ small, a community school is a public school which aims to service all the needs, like wraparound needs of the children who go there. So if you need a dental appointment, you can go to school and they will connect you. They will make it, maybe they'll even get the dentist to come into the school, et cetera, et cetera. They are trying to service the kids, the, the needs of the community beyond just education. Now, this is a very popular model. You know, full disclosure, when I was a teacher, I taught at a community school in the Bronx, California, just earmarked, built, 
earmarked. Oh my gosh, my Long Island leaped out. Earmarked uh, billions of dollars for community schools, and Biden seems to be really attracted to the idea as well. So let's talk a little bit about what are community schools, and is this a model that we can use for communities in crisis and communities of color and communities in need? So Trisha, why don't you start with your impressions of uh, community schools uh, and the article? Well, I think what I found really valuable about it was um, the assumption that uh, education is just one of the very, very, one of the things that um, students are navigating as a, as a young person, right? I think that's really interesting to me. And the idea that you have to treat sort of like the whole student um, was compelling. But I think also, um, I, I'm, I'm just sort of curious about the idea of how the community might fully participate in the development of young people. Like they, I mean, this is like a, we say it all the time. They are our most valuable assets. Um, uh, but then what, what we until do Until we're is ready we, to be like, well, we can't do anything to stop them from being shot. But yes, Exactly, right? Up until then, a moment, they're our most valuable asset. They are our most valuable <laughs> asset. Human asset. Human asset. We, we, we care a lot about our property assets, but human yeah. assets. Human assets. Well, go ahead. But, you know, what also is compelling for me is I don't have, I don't have children, right? But it feels like there's a kind of ownership that expands to everyone, which I feel like is a useful model for us to consider when we think about public education. You know, because some I, someone casually wrote this um, maybe a couple of weeks ago when I was strolling on, on Twitter, should I care about who's on the school board if I don't have kids? I think the question of a community school, no, and I think that's a valid question because I oftentimes some people say to right. me, right? Yeah. Somebody says, oh, well, I don't have kids. Why should this matter? But, Do you want social security? Do you yeah. want the kids to be able to have jobs that they pay taxes that pay for your retirement? But I mean, I mean, sure, but like something, is, but something in the minutia, like who's on a school board, right? You know what I mean? But a community yeah. school to me suggests that that's actually a question that we would all sort of take seriously. So for me, that's what's compelling about the community school model or as it's presented to me at the moment, which is the idea that we all own a stake in the development of young people. Jason, you were a bigwig at the Department of Education. What can you add to the conversation about community schools? Tell us about what they are. Yeah, so it, it is a it is a big tent. And, you know, I, I think your definition, Chris, I think you, you said it very well. I think there's a lot, there's a spectrum there, right? I mean, there are schools that may call themselves community schools that they have a couple social, social workers in the school on the very light end. And then there are schools, and admittedly one I used to lead, that have, you know, medical clinics inside with doctors and nurses and everything in between. And and so it can look very different in a lot of different places. Like most things in education, we don't really have like a national strong definition. It's very much uh, regulated, uh, operated at the local level for better or for worse or for better and for worse. A couple of things that I'll say. So there's a federal pot of money that has been there for quite a while called 21st Century Community Learning Centers. And that's basically federal money that goes to states that then schools can apply for in partnership with local nonprofits to provide wraparound services or after school programming, that kind of thing. Look, I think at a very fundamental level, the concept of bringing services that we know children need closer to the schools where we know children are just makes all the sense in the world and we should do it a ton more. 
you know, the challenges for any family, regardless of economic background, but of course, much more difficult for those of low, low socioeconomic backgrounds, bringing therapy services to the school or near the school, bringing doctor's offices closer to the school, all the different things that families have to go and take their kids here, there, and everywhere. It's just better for everyone, including the school, including the students, to have that stuff in the school or right nearby. So I am all for it. Yes, let's do it. I will tell you, I do think there are times when support for community schools, in quotes, can sometimes mask intentionally or not our failure as a society to lead students to achieve at high levels academically. The thing that worries me, and again, I am all for community schools. I will support it 100%. But I do worry sometimes, it's very easy politically and otherwise to celebrate the wraparound services and ignore when kids are not reading or doing math or getting other kinds of academic uh, having other kinds of academic success. Is and this always worries, true? It is, <laughs> it is always true. I'll, I'll say something maybe a little controversial. The article that we're talking about, one of the first quotes from like a third party was from the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union. And I think sometimes we avoid looking in the face our collective failure to provide high quality instruction to kids by saying, well, we just need more social workers. We just need more wraparound services. I think we need those things. I am not arguing against them. We also need to teach reading better. And while yes, absolutely kids learn better when their other needs are met. If we don't teach reading well, then those kids who don't have the luxury of print rich homes and parents who have the time and skills to read to them all the time, they don't learn to read as well. And that requires good instruction, even while we should be doing all the other things. And I, I want to throw back to like the, like the first sentence out of Trisha's mouth is that she used the word treat, treating the whole child, which when you think about it is a, it's sort of like a paradigm shift in thinking about what schools could be. Because it's not, we don't think about treating kids in school, we think about educating them. When you throw the word treat in there, it really is sort of like, you know, how do we provide them with services? How do we alley-oop them up into success? Now, Jason, what you're introducing, like I like I said, I think that's always true. The concern about uh, like how kids are learning, their achievement, like all of those rubrics, and pedagogical techniques, all of that is always true, regardless of whether the school is offering services or not, that should always be attacked. Now, I think what you're saying also um, is important that we throw up something like community school, and of course, it just makes sense. Well, I think we all agree. It just makes sense. Like, yeah, if the kids are going to school and the kid falls and like chips a tooth and they're gonna have to miss like four days of school. While, yeah, maybe if there was someone in the school who coordinate that, of course that's the right idea. But those things have to exist at the same time. I'm just repeating what you're saying, Jason, and taking credit for it, is that we have to focus on being rigorous and really attack education, like in getting the kids to perform better and while providing services will certainly help that, it's not the whole pot, right? It's not the whole pot. I think this is a great idea, but I, I listen, I'm a little worried. You know, before we got on, we were just talking about funding 
And like we said in this article, we're talking about there's all this money going to community schools, um, which is great. But the only thing I see is like, it's possible for all that money to be pulled. Now, I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but I guess I like the idea of a one-stop shop, as you know, because I'm lazy in my real life. I've always pitched this idea of like public libraries being community centers, like just places where everyone can go and get stuff. So I'm all the way on board with this. How do we insulate an institution like this from the political whims of the people in Congress and state government? Well, can I, I, I love that question. And something that's been a passion of mine for a long time and that we have not figured out, we should be able to, and we do this to some extent, but we should be able to do it to a much larger extent. We should be able to give kids services in school that we can then bill insurance, Medicaid, whatever, as well. We have these silos in funding in our country. And we know this, there's public funding, there's private funding, and that's generally a problem. But there are these walls that we put up, I think, for a variety of reasons, never for the benefit of, of the children, that we need to knock down. And I think this doesn't totally answer your question, Chris, but part of the problem is it should not just be on the education funding to create the community schools. Because in a sense, we're kind of duplicating some of it. I'm all for more funding, but there are pots of money that we make it hard for kids and families to access, just like we make it hard to access these services, that we should not make it that hard. We should do work to make sure that if kids are getting services in school, that we're able to bill all the different funding sources that can be brought to bear for those services. For me, the thing is, it's, it is a little bit of a um, a shift, a mental shift. It's not a little bit. It's a real shift, right? You know, Chris, you said, I'm just talking about the whole child, right? That's a part of it, right? And And it doesn't mean for me that the academic side isn't something that gets to be tackled. But I think one of the things that we've actually been consistently that research has consistently showed is that the academic piece doesn't even, we can't get to it because there's so many of these other barriers. And so in some ways, this like, um, this is an opportunity for us to conceive of a structure that fully admits that we have to deal with all of these other failures before we can even jump into the academic, right? And so the question to me now is, when I say that this is a community school, I'm curious about the, what's the relationship to the private sector here? Like, what's the, like, what, what can the private sector offer up? What can funders offer up? What can philanthropy offer? Like, I'm just like, you are able to access the child in one place. We have after-school activity clubs that funders make happen right somewhere else so the question for me is like it's potentially an opportunity for money to actually streamline in one place but then of course there are all kinds of things that can happen there i get it but we do a lot of wraparound services externally already and funders make that happen the question for me is how do we activate it so that it can actually be directed in a more meaningful way in a connected way and i guess that's that to me is the question that i have for you chris when you're saying well how do we make sure that this doesn't um this already happens right mm -hmm. we're we're vulnerable to the whims of like you know money um and then other people pick up the slack but the other part of it that's interesting to me is like does that also does does a community school signal a different relationship with community members of which businesses are members and all the other things, right? Like, yes. what does that look like? What does, what's that charter maybe look like? Uh-oh. 
in terms of your partnerships, not okay, of your charter schools. Okay, because we're not talking about charter school. That's a whole different thing. No, I'm thing. talking about what is the charter that yeah. might be involved in terms of responsibilities to others, you know, businesses, right? Private, public partnerships, all of that language that everyone loves to use so much. One of yeah. the most shocking things I learned when I got into social work school mm-hmm. was I was shocked at how difficult it was to get information about services in a community. You know, mm. I was so naive. I was 23 and I was like, okay, great. I was working in agency. I was like, oh, someone called, they need this. Where's the database that has everything in the city? It just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's so much competition around these services. They're all going after the same funders. Some of them are using for marketing, some, a lot of nonprofits. I hate to tell, I hate to burst the bubble. A lot of nonprofits are run by people who have no idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though they're working with vulnerable populations, they can't actually service them, but they're still taking money away from other organizations who could do the work. It's like real dog eat dog kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does that apply to what I'm talking about here? You know, when I think about this idea about a community school, like I said, Love it. I'm all the way in. But the money piece is the thing that I think is difficult. To say mm-hmm. nothing of the education education piece, which you brought up, it's like, hey, we can't get to that piece because you know these kids need backpacks and don't have shoes. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Let's fix that. I just, working with the community, if we're talking about communities of color or communities in crisis, mm-hmm. I don't know how much money the community is going to have to fund the school, even though the long-term benefits could and would be obvious. Right. So that leads us to outside funders who come in with all of their demands, who come in with needing to get particular kind of outcomes, which maybe can't be delivered that quickly. Jason? Well, I'm going to, can I have my 30 second spot to say my idealism that you two will roll your eyes at? Thank you. I mean, this (laughs) happens every episode. So I should actually put together like a little musical thing to announce. That Jason's this is the part of the episode. Unrealistic segment. Yeah. To, and then uh, it, Jason's it, minute love unre- unrealistic aspirations. Yeah. Look, the, what what I think of when you say what you just said, Chris, is this fundamental problem we have, where for the most part, education in our communities um, is paid for by local property taxes. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is those who pay the highest amount of, of local property taxes need the least when it comes to of education, course. but yeah. they have the highest funding. And so my idealistic wish is I would love to see us have ideally national, if not, then at least at the state level, funding formulas that are based on student need and not local property taxes, that it's done at, again, a state or national level, not a local level. And if we did that, if we said, look, kids with these challenges, these disabilities, these socioeconomic backgrounds need, you know, 2X or 3X to, you know, to get their needs met, including all the other services we're talking about. That's, I think, long-term, the equitable way to do it, you know, have real justice for, for children. I don't know Jason, how to get there. I'm going to be honest with you. That wasn't that crazy. Okay. Thank you. You know, usually you just say- <laughs> Getting saner in my I, age. Usually, you just go off the deep end, and you're like, "Let's hands across America, this shit." You know, usually yeah. that's your tip. But honestly, we have relegated schools to be the local community, right? Yep. Even even in our discussion now, we're talking about yeah. a community school. Yes. Like, let's turn to the community. Yeah. But like, maybe just at least when it comes to money, like pulling the the scope back a little bit. Honestly, our communities are interconnected. Okay. And so I could see at the state level being like, listen, people upstate, 
money's going to be shifted around. And for some of those poor rural places, money's going to be funneling in and mm-hmm. away from places like Scarsdale and Great Neck, New York. I'm just talking about New York, like all the rich places over here. But in California, Beverly Hills and stuff, the money should be funneling out yep. um, to surrounding communities because not for nothing, like all the kids in that community are going to be working in and around the city you live in right. anyway. Yeah. So this idea like, you know, that kids have to go out. Listen, when I was in high school, we used to do boosters. I don't know if it's a Long Island thing, but like <laughs> basically what we would do is go from sell house candy. to house. <laughs> we wouldn't even sell candy, Jason. We were just straight up ask people for money. We were teenagers knocking on doors being like, hi, we go to the high school. We really yep. want to have arts programs and sports. Can we please count on you for $15? We were asking people in the community. Now, fantastic. I, I grew up in a middle-class community. Uh, congratulations. Every single year that I was in school, we had the arts and the sports programs because yep. we had people who owned two, three homes uh, in, in some of those neighborhoods. But like in other communities, it's like, it's just going to be a given. They don't get it. That seems silly. We should pool the money. And it could be state. I mean, maybe even by county, although I don't love that, but I don't know why we don't pull that. That would be one answer. You know why we don't pull it. I know why we don't. I know why we don't. It's not a reason we don't pull anything. But you know why. I I think that would be the, I think that would have to be the answer because I'm very sensitive to the fact that this is a great idea, but like, yeah, if Newsom didn't earmark $3 billion, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, um, but I I love I love the idea. I don't really see the downside. Wait, is that a problem that we all agree? Is there a downside here? I mean, sure, there are downsides of it. Um, Jason, well, name one. I mean, I mean, I think to you know what prevents us from doing that now. What prevent what prevents us from? We I mean, are. I think no. I mean, I mean, there's some there's some competition, right? There's there's some perceived competition because what we're talking about is pulling all of these sort of seemingly disparate services under an umbrella right and that and there's been a there's been some value to having those separated for quite some time look i think a couple of things and we could probably think of many there are turf wars yep so a principal is like this is my school and you're going to bring these other agencies in some some principals don't want the competition others don't want the responsibility and i've seen this in real time in some schools are like look i got enough on my hands dealing with teaching kids i can't deal with coordinating all that other stuff and then uh and again i there are plenty of good actors here but i'm talking to some of the some of the challenges you know what i said before like when i was in baltimore i was often advocating for why does the city of baltimore have separate facilities for like Department of Social Services and like, why don't they bring them into the schools? Mm-hmm. But you know what? Like there are people who are like, am I going to lose my job? Because if this is at the school, then it's going to fall into the school district. I'm a city employee. Like there's turf there. And so it's not, again, not a good reason why it doesn't happen, but it is a political reason why it doesn't always happen. And it's Can not I just those things. Add a footnote to that. Also, it's because, especially when we're talking about principals who are not necessarily educated about all the services that want to be offered in that school could be problematic. I was working with a middle school last year in Harlem and the principal, he wanted the social workers to engage the kids and he wanted the kids to be engaged every period of the day. 
without understanding that 50% of social work is paperwork. Every time we interact with a kid, it requires like extensive paperwork and we need the time to do that. But he couldn't hear it because he could only understand our services one way to say mm-hmm. nothing of the medical clinic on the first floor. And the other, you know, BlackRock was giving a lot of money for a mentorship thing. Like you said, I, I think a lot of principals either don't want or can't handle or can't understand the responsibilities mm-hmm. about these services. You would need some sort of like, surface czar in the building or the district and now now we're adding layers of complication yeah but no but i think you have a point and you know there are principals who'd want to kill me for saying this i mean this is where and not, not everything at private schools is or should be translatable to public schools but the idea of a head of school that has a scope beyond instruction instruction super important most important thing i mean but having like a head now. of school that oversees okay you're gonna you principal gonna do the instruction and then i have someone else who reports to me as head of school who's going to oversee wraparound services that kind of alignment leadership that creates alignment is is necessary but not in the current model and again introducing a reform like that can be challenging because of turf because of funding and, and those things i love that idea i love the idea because the principal being being the last stop that person is trained on, you know, education and pedagogy. Like that person should not be making decisions about how are mental health services, dental services, vision. How is that <laughs> allocated out to students? Like they should not. I yeah, I love not, that idea. Right. It should be someone above the principal, but all maybe the superintendent. No one is going to like that person. Neither the principal nor the superintendent. That's the problem. Isn't it like a shared leadership structure though? Nobody in education. Nobody likes shared leadership. Everyone well, like, has a fiefdom. But isn't there one? I mean, the fiefdom is yours. The, yours the you're the academic fiefdom, and you're the other services. Not enough. <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, I've worked in a couple of schools. It's not enough for principals. Like they're they're they can be petty and they can be egotistical, and they love the idea that they're king of the school. Jason, you're a principal. Well, Speak this, on it. Well, this this is the thing. I mean, I I know we don't want to talk about charter schools, and I'm not I'm not saying this to advocate for charter schools per se, but I can say that the the model for some charter schools, and this was the case for mine. I, w- I was first I was a principal, but then I became executive director and I had two principals under me, an elementary and a middle. And I'm not saying it was perfect by any means, but it kind of allows for that. I had two people who focused on day to day instruction and I had other people who focused on other aspects. And I think that's a it's a good model. <laughs> Trisha, take the last word on this. Um, I think where are you left now? Where am I left is that. I'm actually where community schools are advocating for a fundamental um, reimagining of managing the socialization and the development of the whole child. And that is <laughs> politically fraught. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think ultimately um, a better model overall to be honest i mean right now it's too it's too hit or miss too many folks will fall through the cracks really right um and um but oh no did i come back around to my love of my love my 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 back and forth love of institutions did i just institutionalize this again but you started (laughs) there what do you mean come back around (laughs) that's what we're talking about you know, and I don't think like, that's I don't think that's a bad thing. I really not, don't. It's not if it's administrated though. well. But you know what? I mean, this is the fantasy part. Administrative well is the fantasy part. But the uh, the part for me that's actually not a fantasy is the community buy-in. That part to me feels like the animating feature. 
for me, I want it to be something where I am engaged in thinking about the school down the street from me, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether I have a kid there or not. Yeah, like, amen. I think I need a process by which that becomes really transparent to me. And the mm -hmm. community school could potentially do that for people, right? I think a hyper engagement with things in your neck of the woods is ultimately really valuable because it also helps you shore up the value of public goods. It makes sure that you will potentially defend it if there are voting possibilities that you need to consider. And then you also have an actual opportunity to see the work in practice and you can evaluate it. Like right now, I don't know how to evaluate what is happening unless I'm personally invested in a school because I have a child there. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like it. I like that too. And that's where we're going to leave it. Community schools for everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we would love to hear critiques of it, though. For anyone who's currently in a community school, someone who's engaged in doing that work, I'd love to find out what some of the challenges are um, mm -hmm. and what are some of the pain points. Um, you know, please feel free to send us an email. I think I want to promise that we'll tackle some of these questions in some weird future episode. Uh, don't make any promises. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we commit to nothing, people. Yes, we exactly. commit to nothing. We're the, we're the people who take a nine-month break and then come back and be like, that, deal with it. So let's not make any promises. <laughs> let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason? I have started watching The Old Man, which is an FX series, but I watch it on Hulu, oh. Jeff Bridges, yeah. and it's 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 haunting. It's 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 a little weird to recommend it because like I'm not saying watching it is pleasant all the time. It's very well done, really interesting, and I'm on the edge of my seat the whole time. Can you, as always, Jason, as I have always, to prompt yeah. you to tell people <laughs> a little bit about you're recommending it. Why do you want people yeah. to watch it? Um, so, you know, Jeff Bridges plays a former, I guess CIA, it's not always clear, but uh, a former agent of the United States who was in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And it appears he's been off the grid for a long time, maybe did some really bad things, we're not quite sure. And then, as happens, for some reason, the apparatus needs to go after him. And so I have to admit, when I first heard about it, even when I first started watching, I was like, is this the typical Jason Bourne? you know, invincible John Wick, but it's not. It, it looks that way at first, but it, it's very psychological, really interesting. Every character you see, their emotional depth, their compassion, and you see when they are sadistic. And I think it 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 rings very true. It's it's the kind of thing you watch like, huh, I, I am both a good person and a monster. <laughs> like that's kind of what happens in the show. And you see yourself in the different sides of the character. Interesting. Thank you, Trisha. I must admit, um, I've not experienced a ton of other things, but I have a thing that I really, really want to see, and I'm kind of impervious to um, reviews right now. So I'm basically declaring that I'm going to see it, and I'll hopefully be affirmed. I really want to go see Nope. And so I I want to see Nope because first nope? of all, Nope is the latest um, from our fearless director. What is his name? Jordan uh, Peele. Jordan, Jordan Peele. Peele. Jordan Peele. It is the third, right? The third mm -hmm. feature film of mm -hmm. Jordan Peele. Um, and I've heard that it is his best and most assured. Better yet. than Get Out. Um, 
a more assured vision, right? As a, as a, as an mm. auteur, which is interesting mm -hmm. to me. And also for me, what's in, what, what I like about it is that I get to be on a new journey with someone, right? Which is like, I've, I've, I've seen everything he's done. So I'm like, let's see how it's changed of all the questions he's asking. I feel like there's a through line. There's been a through line across his work. So I'm curious to see where this third bit beat hits. And then the, um, and then the other piece of it to me is that um, somebody, I was watching a, um, a commercial and someone was talking about it. One of the actors was talking about it and um, Jordan Peele is talking him through why, you know, what was happening. And, and as he's talking, he's like, there will be moments where, Black people in the audience would be like, nope, nope. And that's what so the trailer like that. I love the trailer where you see every actor and going, nope, hell no, nope, no, nope. And so oh, I love the idea already, which is I think what Jordan Peele has done really well is yeah. to really think about the audience and imagine yeah. the journey the audience is gonna be on. And, I, and so I, I have to say, like when because this movie's the trail's been coming out for some time, like, nope, nope, what is this? And then I realized. Oh, when you go to a, when you watch a movie with black people, that's all you hear. You know, there's like, oh, did you hear something downstairs? And you hear the artist go, nope, mm -mm, no, honey, stay in bed. What are you? Absolutely not. I was like, oh, I get it now. Well, you know, now your homework is since you've recommended it. See it this week. Come back next it. week and let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want to see it so bad. But you know, as you know, Same. I'm afraid of theaters. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's only in theaters right now. Yeah, right? It is. Okay. My recommendation is the Apple Plus Apple mm -hmm. TV show Loot, starring Maya oh, Rudolph. Never heard of it. Oh my gosh! In trailer. it, I love Maya it. Rudolph is married to a tech gabillionaire, and mm -hmm. in the first fifteen minutes, she finds out he's been cheating on her, and they get divorced, making her the third richest woman in the country with yes. eighty-seven billion dollars to her name. So she finds out that she wants to move past just being a rich woman and a wife. Mm -hmm. So she realizes she finds out she has a foundation and mm -hmm. she goes in every day to work to try to make herself a better person and make the world a better place and hilarity ensues Maya Rudolph is such a joy to watch Michaela J Rodriguez who is in Pose I'm such a fan of her and you could see her acting getting better every project <laughs> she takes and she's such a joy I'm so in love with her Joel Kim Booster uh, if you're gay you know who he is and you've also seen him nonstop all summer he's in this show too it's an ensemble comedy cast. It's really a lot of fun. And like I said, Maya Rudolph is always a joy to see. So check Ooh, it out. Do I need to subscribe fun. now to Apple TV? I know it sucks, but they are making some good stuff. Severance, loot, people like Ted Lasso. There's a lot to like there. So you <laughs> might want to think about, I can't wait till we just wrap around and get back to cable. I know. What I are know. we doing? I know. I mean, service, that's, that's basically what we're going to do, right? And I hate the fact that we're going to pretend that we invented it. Which is always what oh, happens well, in that Well, 10 sector. years from now, they'll be like, <laughs> everyone, imagine getting Apple TV, Netflix, and Hulu all at the same time. Now you can with one low price of $99 a month. And the the, the Gen Z will be like, this is fucking incredible. I'll be like, bitch, we've been doing it since the 70s. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and on that note, everybody. <laughs> I know. Bye. Bye. <laughs>